Hi, welcome to Behind the Lighthouse, short stories from Byron Bay and beyond, where we bring you short stories created by amazing writers living in the Northern Rivers, Australia. The Byron Bay hinterland, so to speak. And I'm your host, Steve Nossiter. The Northern Rivers is Bundjalung country. As part of this storytelling, I'd like to acknowledge the Bundjalung people, the traditional custodians of the land on which we writers live. And we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. student of so many disciplines that he wryly describes himself as probably overqualified for jobs that haven't been invented yet. Carl Johnson is a writer fascinated by how things work. That fascination extends to people and relationships. This story has some of the style and overtones of Arabian Nights and Arthurian legend, and more than a touch of whimsy, as it delves into the mind of a powerful but lonely man. Nine Concubines Written by Carl Johnston Read by Henry Rennie The Emperor donned his armour of sapphire steel, livery of turquoise and blood-rust black, and his crown of many horns, he took up his blade, King Sever. Gathered he his surgeon generals atop six squealing mounts. They rode. The emperor's first concubine arose. She breakfasted in private, a platter of fruits and pastries having been placed in the antechamber. Then she attended to her personal bathe in the high-walled water feature, all crystal and effervescence. Next, she played practice a while upon the flute, and a wondrous keening was heard throughout the vicinity. The lady is well familiar with her arts, the staff did tell, for the first concubine's abilities were highly regarded throughout the court and all the land. Then she made herself ready by all the means she possessed. Her lustrous black hair she coiled tight atop her regal head, the requisite seven wisps allowed free in semblance of immodesty. Her nails, hand and foot, she trimmed and painted pink, for not even the symbol of an unsheathed blade was permitted in the presence of the emperor in his citadel. Her exquisite pale flesh she anointed with his preferred fragrant essence. Her single robe, precariously bound with fragile buttons and frail wisps, she affixed to her lithe form. Finally, her pretty face she painted thick with pure white, her eyes a fierce crimson, a newly born visage unseen by any man alive. Returned she to her circular bedding to lay. White ribbon she bound her eyes with, unless to catch any glimpse of her master the emperor upon his return. And there she did await his pleasure, and await. The emperor... His generals, their staff, and the army of the realm took war to the caliphate, the despised enemy, and victory glorious they brought back to the citadel in the city. All hailed the emperor for his wisdom and ruthlessness, his might and his holiness. 
all praised their great fortune in being advanced one step closer to heavenly perfection. The emperor blessed them each and every, an accomplishment achieved with the merest flick of his wrist, and then retired to his quarter. He doffed his regalia and bathed. A mighty sigh was heard around the vicinity. Our Lord doth recover his strength against all his majestic feats to come, the staff did tell each other. The apothecary tendered him of some minor abrasions and an uncomfortable chafe, whereupon the horse-master was roundly whipped and garroted. Then did the emperor visit upon his first concubine, so to take well-earned and rightful refreshment. It must be assumed he did lay with her and engage in blissful congress, and that they did anoint one the other with the fruits of their love's labours, for what other should a man of stature require of a woman of elevated position? If mere man he truly be, for upon this we shall not speculate. It must be assumed, because no eyes spied upon them that night, nor any other, upon pain of blinding, castrating and beheading. It was observed and verified, however, that the Emperor did depart the bedchamber much later, and in especially high spirits, and wearing a regal sheen upon his proud, limpid person. But he never saw her face. The next day dawned, as it so often does, and ever more shall. The Emperor donned his ceremonial robes and the comfy coronet, the one with the extra padding behind the ears. He donned the silken slippers cunningly crafted to resemble steel with rivets. This day was taxation review day, and the emperor was required to adjudicate upon disputes, to endorse the annual takings, and to decree the coming year's legislations. He would have preferred the dungeon master to settle the disputes, and the treasurer the rest. Oh, but tradition was tradition, so what can one do? He quietly directed the citadel concierge to light an extra censer of special recipe nearby and submerged himself in the funk of proceedings. The emperor's second concubine arose. She arose late and spent much of the day in playful pursuit because she was full aware of the length and density of taxation day and of the extent of the emperor's regard for the day's worth in the great scheme of things and of the length and density of the citadel concierge's special herbage. Thus she conserved her strengths, bathed late, and made herself prepared at an appropriate hour. In white face and white mask, and upon her white bed, she awaited. At the end of the hour of supplication, after the hours of deliberations, the emperor burst into the bedding chamber in a rage and vented a fearsome roar. She, the second concubine, quailed within herself. Then the emperor observed her comely curves displayed before him, and his anger cooled, or was otherwise diverted. His masculine fires burned then all the hotter, and their union was both forged and quenched. All this is again surmised. He never saw her face. Early upon the next day, the emperor was roused from his slumber by the sounds of commotion most violent, from proximity unacceptable. Eschewing the protective padded greatcoat offered by his valets, he took up a stoking iron and strode forth in his lavender nightdress towards the affray. 
His personal guards were beset by a gang of rebel ruffians in the storeroom adjoining the pantry master's stations. Evidently they had ascended via the bucket and chain from an underground spring and were bent on assassination most foul. The emperor joined battle on his own behalf. With utmost force and precision he broke limbs, pierced eyes and subjugated the stragglers. Several of the scoundrels lay dead, but others survived until the end of that day. In the meantime, the third concubine was awoken by way of messenger ostrich, ungainly but reliable. The ostrich, not the concubine. Whilst the emperor engaged in interrogation, she raised her hair with hurry, covered her face and lit the bed. She was still tying the silk when he strode in, all roused by the precision of the new inquisitor's techniques. For the emperor to arrive at such an early hour of the morn, with such shortness of notice, was a serious breach of the covenant between master and third, or practically any other concubine. Equally in breach was the lady herself, clad as she was in a common, though comfortable and noticeably slight, nighty. Their mutual transgressions must surely have magnified whatever other intrusions occupied them that morn, it is believed. The emperor was observed to sleep long and deep afterwards. A sonorous snore reverberated throughout the vicinity, rapidly vacated out of respect and he never saw her face. The court and the populace had long anticipated the following day with electrical excitement. The anniversary of the emperor's descent to the realm had arrived. No amount of celebration would be too small or too extravagant upon such an occasion. One recalls the moat set on fire last year and the impromptu feast of piglets the year before the emperor allowed himself to be conducted to a few of the more dignified festivities, and thereafter attended some carousing while disguised as a prosperous beggar and supplicant. He soon tired, though, of the maintenance of required jollity, and returned through secret passage to his quarter. The fourth concubine had anticipated the emperor's weariness. She presented a light repast of tasty, nutritious and extravagant morsels, and a healthy supply of dark and light ales, meads and ciders. Thusly heartened, they took to her bed for some cuddles, some spooning and some come what may. Probably. But he never saw her face. At the next day, a foreign dignitary arrived with slightest fanfare or forewarning, a day early. The emperor felt not like seeing her, nor anybody else, so he didn't see her face at all not even the makeup. She was the fifth concubine. The next was the day of a great and grand wedding. He had forgotten about it, and with himself debated whether to attend. Eventually, though, his protocol masters and the jester convinced him. Swiftly he dressed, and slowly he remembered to dispatch a courier to purchase a few gifts from the Citadel souvenir shop and arrived in time to observe the vows. It was his first concubine, now released and free to marry that businessman who was always mooching around the court. Probably never get rid of him now. Must remember to add his name to the dungeon master's to-do list. He saw then her face. Pretty. She must always have been so pretty. 
and the sixth concubine received a right and royal bollocking that night, a treatment she failed to appreciate, and she told him so, most emphatically. The whole vicinity and several other nearby vicinities heard that argument. He certainly did not see her face, but he almost saw the back of her hand, allegedly. The next day, the fountains stopped working and the high-walled water feature flooded, and the spring-water chain broke, and such a ghastly stench emanated from the meat safe of nearby. Then the master plumbers took an age to arrive, and they brought the wrong tools, at which time new plumbers who were still alive had to be fetched from the villages. None of the dukes or generals knew anything about plumbing, softy southerners, so the emperor had to supervise. The flooding ruined the entire wardrobe of the seventh concubine. Her shoes, too, so she had to borrow a handmaiden's finest clothes, which were not very fine at all. The makeup was dry, at least she got that bit working right. But when she made to don the white blindfold, it was sodden and a bit rank. Oh, what was she to do? And so it was that the unwashed emperor stalked into the bedchamber and annex and saw her. He saw her white-clad face, for it was unbound, and she saw his. It was but a glimpse, but the deed was done. She gasped and cowered and averted her eyes, and fully expected to become flame-consumed, or dungeon-foddered, or struck a mighty. But the Emperor spied a suspicion of her handsomeness, and saw also her abject reverence for him, and he took pity upon her. His pity took the form of loving respect as though between equals or partners. He bade her to look upon him, not as an emperor, but as a man. And so the seventh concubine did. He knew passion that night, and he nearly saw her face. He did see her soul, and she his. But the covenant between master and concubine forbade attachments, even little quick ones. So it was that they parted in the morning, yet part of them both remained conjoined. In the hour before the dawn of the following day, sentries reported a strange new light on the sky horizon, a point of white trailing a long mist. Master Viziers bade the emperor be summoned, studied he that light until the sun itself rose beneath it. Conferring with the aged masters of astronomics and astrologistics, he announced the need for a pondering. He pondered long and he pondered deep, and at the mid-morn he woke from a particularly deep and refreshing ponder, keen and alert. After quick reference with the master of portents, the emperor made a speech which concluded that bounty and security and good health were assured for all. This quelled any murmurings amongst the peoples, and the rest of the day was consumed in the giving of thanks through the taking of libation. To provide further reassurance, the emperor mingled himself into their midst. He did not hide in any disguise, but rather he mingled freely, attending their ceremonies, speaking encouraging words, and partaking a little of their offerings. But it was soon noted that the emperor seemed a little distracted, a little reserved. Unbeknownst to any, the Emperor came to perceive that none of these faces were her angelic white face of the night before. None of the voices were as melodious. 
and none of these people present could claim his attentions as she did even in her absence. When able, he took to the rooms of the eighth concubine, intending to purge this unbecoming wistfulness. Well-trained she was, and most skilled with hand and voice and body. Though unsighted, she plied her full art. This pleased the emperor adequately, but not mightily, for he remained distracted. It was remarked within the court that he ambled to his chambers as though unwell. And he did not see her face. He saw another face instead. The following was a day of distractions. The sudden and mostly unexpected death of a minor courtier required investigation, and an investigation into the investigation. The portent in the sky had brightened and needed another ponder or two. The plumbings functioned erratically. The body of a businessman could not be dispatched without a royal seal upon its forehead. The new side of vintage had been delivered and required appraisal. It was too bitter. It was all too bitter. It was as the ninth concubine commenced her personal preparations that the emperor decided, Fetch unto me my sixth and seventh concubines. This decree caused much consternation and a flurry, a veritable storm of activity, most of it vocal. Such a demand had never been made. However, it soon happened that the sixth was the first to make ready and arrive. You do displease me mightily. She hung her head in consternation. How had she failed? I have admiration for your spiritedness. I do. Yet such a one can have no place in my harem. She attempted a protest that only inflamed him more. He took up King Sever and dispatched the lady with a thrust and a twist. There shall be a new propriety in my quarter. The deed was done. He cleaned the blade and replaced it above the mantel. Then the ninth concubine, the senior of all the ladies, entered, six others behind her. Master, might I be permitted to speak? She had removed her blindfold, although she did affix her sight to the body on the bloodied carpet. The emperor felt by turns exhausted, and ashamed, and intrigued, and truth be told, by a small measure, aroused. He faced these women, and acceded. Majesty, upon the wedding of your first concubine we numbered eight. Now your majesty has slain the seventh, I regret. The blindfolded heads were lowered. Must also we await our executions? But the emperor did then produce a sob and a wail that broke open the hearts of all that heard, just as his own was broke. What have I... He had slain the one who broached his defences, and slew his reserved, and invaded the heart he once, only once, possessed. Such a love would never again be his, he knew. Majesty, we await our doom. But he relented. That love had fled him, but he had seen it, its face. He knew it lived somewhere in the land, or even in the citadel itself, and that love should be had, if not by himself, then by someone, or all. Such love was a vital and valuable thing, and if it were possible, he would set this realm to nurturing it, a new crop, a new currency for his land. He commanded, though gently, 
wash her face. This was done. He gazed upon her face for the first time and the last. Then he regarded his concubines that remained. Which of you was my sixth previously? That one shrank back for a moment, but gathered herself and stepped forward. The senior lady brought her to the fore. I will not slay you, nor any other. There has been too much wrongful death in my name. Any name. He let fall a single tear. Remove your blinds, all of you. And they all saw each the other, and all wept a little. In time, the emperor wedded himself to his lady, the former sixth concubine, the one with the feisty spirit. The other ladies he did free, though did not abandon. They remained as senior courtiers and counsellors, ones with more insight and wisdom than most, adept as they were in the ways of men and women, kings and peoples, and the realm did prosper. For the rest of their days, the emperor and the empress lived as equals in their differences. They played well and ruled well, his compassion tempered by her firm intellect, and they awoke each morning the way they slept each night, always face to face. Thanks for joining me. If you like this story, please consider subscribing to this podcast and maybe even leaving a little review. For now, we'll see you next time round with another short story from Behind the Lighthouse. Short stories from Byron Bay and beyond. Behind the Lighthouse was written, recorded and produced by Steve Nossiter. Me. At Arcane Studios in Ganella Bar. The music was also composed by me.